The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that whenever we sin, if we are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can't lose our salvation, but our fellowship, our intimacy, our rapport with God is broken. And the ongoing, sanctifying, spiritual growth-producing ministry of the Holy Spirit is, is uh, quenched. And we are told that we are to confess our sins, and when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we begin our study this morning, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Use First John 1, 9 if necessary, and I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it is such a privilege that we have the ability to sit in a congregation of other believers with a completed canon of Scripture on our laps, a completed Bible that has been revealed to us, preserved down through the ages, and in modern times has been available to so many believers, unlike so many in the past who did not even have a complete Scripture in their own language. Father, let us not take that for granted because your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and it is in your light that we see light. And in your word, one of the most important elements is that of prophecy, for in prophecy we see that you are the God who declares the end from the beginning and that you are the God who controls history. Now, as we study the things that we do, we pray that it might encourage and strengthen us motivate us in our spiritual life to continue to pursue spiritual maturity and help us, comfort us in times of crisis, times of global instability, to recognize that these things are not new, but that throughout time you are the God who provides hope, stability, and peace, no matter how unstable or how, how much trauma or crisis is going on in the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we began our study in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 introduces us to the first 
of three series of judgments that form the uh, core framework for understanding what takes place during the period the Bible refers to as the tribulation or as Daniel's 70th week, according to Daniel uh, chapter 9. This is the final seven-year period for the history of Israel that has not yet taken place. There was a, a break that occurred after the crucifixion of Christ, a pause, and into that period between the crucifixion of Christ and the rapture of the church, we have an unforeseen period, unforeseen from the Old Testament, called the church age. The church age will end with the rapture of the church, and then sometime after the rapture of the church, we don't know how quickly or how long that transition period will be, there will be a final period in history called the Great Tribulation when God will bring to a head the judgment of the nations, judgment of rebellious mankind, and also during that time it will be one of the uh, dispensations that has the greatest display of God's mercy of all time. There are many who want to think about uh, what we teach on the tribulation and think, well, it's just such a horrible time. But from what Scripture says, it's also a time of the tremendous number of people who are going to be saved, more so, I think, than at any other seven-year period in all of history. So we begin our study last time, and we looked at the opening verse in verse 1. And I, John says, And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. And at this point, John is to observe uh, another vision. And there's the series of visions that we see in the book of Revelation. And what he is going to see is a series of judgments, the first series called the seal judgments. And in these seal judgments, which cover the first 21 months of the tribulation, there will be six consecutive judgments poured out on human history, judgments unlike anything that has ever been seen in human history. Matthew 24, when Jesus gives a summation of the trends that will take place during the tribulation period, he talks about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and disease. And so people look at the present church age and they see that there seems to be an increase in war, an increase in earthquakes, and a lot of this is just because there's an increase in communication, an increase in population, increase in knowledge of these things. In fact, several years ago at the pre-trib rapture study group meeting, uh, there was a paper presented on the frequency of earthquakes and in the 20th century to see if there was an increase, and there was not. Many people think there is, that, oh, there's more of these things going on today than in times past. And as I pointed out last time, Jesus, when he says that, is talking about what is happening within the seven-year period of the tribulation, not what precedes it. So what happens once the tribulation begins is there is this uh, tremendous increase of all of these kinds of things, the war, famine, death, uh, geophysical disturbances, meteorological disturbances that decimate the planet. And during the, these judgments, virtually half the population on the planet uh, are killed. So we go through the, these first seal judgments. The last judgments, the seventh 
seal judgment is open, and it reveals seven trumpet judgments. That's the next series. So as we begin to look at this, we saw in verse 1 that the Lamb, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, takes the seal that is revealed in uh, Revelation 4 and 5, the seal that he takes from the Father, I mean the um, scroll that he takes from the Father, and he opens the seals, and each seal it reveals a subsequent judgment. The, the scroll itself represents a title deed to the planet as he is going to come at the end to receive the kingdom from God. And we'll look at a passage this morning in Daniel chapter 7 that summarizes that. And the first seal that we see that opens refers to a rider on a white horse. Now, each of the first four seals is represented as a rider on a white horse. The rider is not a specific person or individual, but the rider on the horse represents another judgment. It is a personification of that particular judgment. And this first rider, we saw last time, rides a white horse. White is a picture in Scripture of righteousness. But this is not the Lord Jesus Christ who comes at the end of the tribulation period riding on a white horse. This is the pseudo-Christ or the Antichrist, the one who is a substitute Christ who comes, and he is described in this section as a rider with a bow indicating military power. He is given a crown that is the victor's wreath, and he goes out conquering and to conquer. And conquering is not always done through military defeat. Sometimes conquest is done through other means. So he goes forth conquering and to conquer. And as I pointed out, this is a personification of the Antichrist's conquest. So last time I be we began a study of who is this person that is referred to as the Antichrist. Only one chapter in Scripture describes him as the Antichrist, and that's in First John. There are various other titles that we looked at last time that speak of the Antichrist. And we looked at one of the main passages on the Antichrist, which is found in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And let me just give you a brief summary of what we covered last time, especially for those who weren't here. First of all, the focus of First Thessalonians chapter 2 is on deception. The Antichrist comes and he is a deceiver. He deceives because people are not uh, ready to accept the truth. They have rejected the truth. And when people reject the truth, there, a vacuum is created into their soul and something must go in there to take its place, and that is the lie. Romans chapter 1 talks about the fact that man rejects God, he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, He's, he worships the creature rather than the creator. He is open to deception because he wants to reject God and he rejects the truth, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. Second thing we learned was that the tribulation will not come until something that is translated the departure. And some people translate that and think that means apostasy. There will be apostasy at the end of the age. But actually the word apostasia in the Greek we saw last time means a departure. It's used that way in many passages, many places in, in ancient Greek literature, and it's simply a reference to the rapture. So the tribulation will not come until after the rapture, Second Thess 2.3, compared with First Thessalonians 4.15-17. The rapture is that event when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back for the church, for his bride. He comes back in the air. 
He does not come back to the, to the ground. He comes, does not come back to the earth. He does not come back to establish his kingdom. He simply comes in the air to receive all church age believers, uh, to himself. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 to 17, we say that, that the Lord will descend, uh, in the clouds and there will be a shout, the trumpet of the archangel. Then all the dead in Christ shall be raised first and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. It does not indicate that we're just going up to come immediately down to the earth with him. Third point we saw is that the Holy Spirit is referred to as the restrainer. He's the one who restrains in Second Thess 2, and he is removed before the lawless one. That's another title for the Antichrist. The lawless one is revealed. Now, I want to remind you of this title of the lawless one in this particular chapter because we're going to see that that's a concept related to the Antichrist back in Daniel chapter 7. He is the one who wants to rewrite laws according to his own agenda and his own framework in place of the, the, the law of God. And I use that not in a term, not in reference to the Mosaic law, but in terms of God's divine absolutes that are true for every, every generation because they flow from the integrity of God. And then fourth, and that should be number four, uh, the man of sin is revealed after the rapture. So we don't see the Antichrist before the rapture. We are looking for Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. Fifth, the son of perdition, another title for the Antichrist in this passage, opposes and exalts himself over God and replaces God. He sees himself as God. He wants to be exalted and worshipped as God in 2 Thess 2.4. Sixth, we saw that as the term lawless one, he rejects the law of God, wants to set up his own, <coughs> his own law in <coughs> antithesis to God's law. Seventh, <coughs> Excuse me. We saw that the term Antichrist doesn't mean someone who is against Christ, although that's what he is. He, the Greek preposition anti indicates a substitute. He puts himself up as a substitute for the Messiah, a pseudo-Messiah, which means he is going to claim to, that he can do what only the Messiah can do. I pointed out last time that Especially in the last 200 years, this has been the trend among politicians, especially in the West. There has been this uh, political trend to offer and provide, try to provide a utopic solution to man's problems. And from the French Revolution all the way up to the uh, Bolshevik Revolution, there have been these attempts to try to end poverty, end hunger, uh, solve whatever health problems there are, and to provide a, for a utopia. And this has become so prevalent that what we see today is no matter what political party is in power, they seem to continuously be pressured to move more and more to uh, the left in the direction of providing some sort of solution, some sort of utopic solution, and this is a messianic vision. And just one way in which we see that, that will, <clears throat> that is also true of the, that will be true of the Antichrist, is he is one who will come and he will sign this peace treaty with Israel that will bring peace and order, stability into the Middle East, and we all watch 
and see from year to year how uh, the Middle East continues to be the focal point of conflict and flare-ups and instability. And as this, this will continue all the way to the point when the Antichrist finally seems to resolve that when he signs that covenant with Israel that Daniel speaks about in Daniel chapter 9. But what we also see is that especially in the last 30 or 40 years, we have seen one uh, American president after another gets sucked into this Middle East conflict to try to be the one to resolve it. In fact, there's one president who has uh, mistakenly identified the JC on his uh, uh, initials on his cufflinks, and he thinks that he's the one who's going to bring peace to the Middle East and uh, to the point of being a traitor to this country by going over and interviewing with, uh, with Hamas. But see, that is the same kind of thing that the Antichrist is going to do. <coughs> He's going to be a personage that will be uh, very attractive to people. He is going to be uh, he is going to be extremely articulate in terms of his position. He's going to uh, bring together opposing parties, but he has his own agenda. So the Antichrist is a substitute or pseudo-Messiah. He is going to be attempt to bring in world peace, end all the problems of mankind. And what he offers is a solution to man's problem that denies the basic problem. And if you watch the news carefully, if you watch current events, and if you've observed over the last, not just the last 30 or 40 years, but you can go back into the middle of the, of the 19th century, what you will observe is that, that especially since the end of the uh, 1700s, Western civilization has continuously worked at redefining man's basic problem as something other than sin. At the end of the 1700s, most people in the West believed that mankind was inherently depraved and corrupt. With the, with the influence of Enlightenment ideas coming out of the 1700s, 16th, uh, 17th century and 18th century, you have a, the influence of these ideas that man is basically good. And it, it influences society, it influences Christianity, it lays the groundwork for what becomes known as 19th century religious liberalism that that came on the scene in the 1800s, and at the core is the idea that man is basically good, and if man is basically good, he's, he's perfectible. And if man is perfectible, then society is perfectible, and so it is the goal of government, and it is the goal of the church to bring in this perfection by doing away with immorality, by doing away with... Uh, with what is perceived to be the social sins, and all of this fits this same utopic agenda. And you have uh, utopians that are secularists, you have utopians that are uh, religious, but ultimately any sort of utopic idea is functional atheism because it denies the reality of God and his word that man's basic problem isn't social, 
His basic problem isn't environmental. His basic problem is sin. And that we are all born dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses and sins, and that the only solution comes with a relationship with Jesus Christ by putting our faith and trust in him at the cross, and then only through the word of God and the spirit of God can the corruption and the sin and the sin nature be uh, managed and defeated as the word of God is applied. The solution is not a political solution. It's not an economic solution, which was Marx's uh, solution. It's not a scientific solution, which is what comes out of Darwinism. It is not an educational solution, which is much of what you see with uh, the whole concept of John. It came out of John Dewey's influence, in the, uh, <clears throat> and he was one, he's one of the major architects of the modern education system. Uh, the solution begins with a right orientation to reality, which can only come from taking God at his word. And if that isn't the foundation then everything that you try to do is, is a result of living in a fantasy world. And the more you live consistently with Darwinism, with uh, Marxism, with Freudianism, with any of these things, these systems that came out of the 19th century, that incidentally the leaders of these, these various movements, Marx, Freud, Darwin, communicated with each other, corresponded with one another, and they understood that their systems fed, and fed off of each other and supported each other, and they all were built on the assumption that there was no God and that man could, could define his problems on his own and solve his problems on his own. So when any political system, political entity, political leader uh, purports to solve man's problems through forms of Marxism, socialism, whenever you have education systems that are predicated upon Freudian ideas, on uh, Darwinistic ideas, they're buying into a, a non-theistic view of life. And they, are fun they become functional atheists, and it doesn't matter what they say they believe, it's what they're doing and the foundation of their thought. And so that is what happens with the Antichrist, is, is that he provides a solution that is totally apart from God's word based on a false analysis. And the result of this is God judges... And one of the ways God judges mankind, we see this if you read Romans chapter 1, is God gives us over to our sin nature, as it were. He re removes the restraints. And if you read through Romans chapter 1, you see that uh, an increase in uh, homosexuality and sexual perversion are all part of God's judgment. They are not what God will judge us for. They are God's judgment on a culture and on a on a society, and each time a society moves more and more uh, in a direction against God, then, <clears throat> then God gives them over to a further degree of, of depravity. And this is the same thing that will happen in the tribulation period. God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And so you have to be able to spot the deception because the deception, the wolf in sheep's clothing, will come and no one, most people, will be deceived in the tribulation period. Our large numbers will be deceived. Now, 
1898, a book came out by Samuel Andrews called Christianity and Anti-Christianity. Now, remember, this was over 100 years ago, and he was writing about the future situation with the rise of the Antichrist, and he made some incredibly perceptive comments. And so I've quoted him here, and I'm going to put the quote up on the screen. It's a little bit lengthier quote than I normally put up, but it shows how perceptive and prescient he was in terms of the trends in politics in the 20th century that must, he understood, they must go that way if we're going to see the kind of end-time scenario presented in the Bible in relation to the Antichrist. So he wrote, The choice of the Antichrist is not to be the choice of the rulers only or of the popular leaders, the multitude being unwilling. In other words, it's not going to be the leaders in contrast to the people, he says. Uh, the multitude's not going to be unwilling, silent, or passive. It's the act of the peoples, the direct or indirect expression of the popular will. It is the voluntary declaration of Christendom. We will not have this man rule over us, not this man, but Barabbas. That's who he wants. See, what he's saying is that when the Antichrist comes, he will be approved and accepted by popular acclaim. The masses will love and adore him. It's not that some political system is going to put him in power, but the people will turn to him and acclaim him as the one who will bring in a utopic uh, society. Andrews goes on to say that we may know here that a democracy looking upon its leader as its representative willingly gives him a power even greater than the largest measure of its political prerogatives. The sovereign multitude, the people which sees in their leader not so much the ruler who commands them as the one who is the exponent and the executor of their will. That, pe that people yields to their ruler such a full and unreserved obedience as no despot could ever attain. This he wrote 30 years before Hitler took power in Germany. See, we read this now, and we've seen these despots in the 20th century, but he wrote this before that. He says, democracy headed up and one who can sway its forces has such elements of aggression and strength as no form of government hitherto existing has ever had. The laws and institutions are no longer reverenced as having sanctions when having gone through continual change after change after change. Think about that. This is written in 1898, and he says when you have a government that changes the laws and the interpretation of laws over and over and over again, it destroys any sense of stability in law itself. He says when various institutions are continually changed, they have no root in the traditions or the love of the people. In other words, the generations will forget what the founders wanted because there have been so many changes that it doesn't matter what the intent of the founders of the republic were, uh, what, what their intent was. When rulers by popular election prove themselves incapable, when no surety or stability of legislation exists and all are uncertain and anxious as to the future, then there arises a general cry for a man, 
In a general disintegration, it is only about a man that men can rally, not about abstract principles or written constitutions. All cry for one with a brain, inflexible will, and a strong arm who can serve as a center of unity and bring order out of confusion. The point that he is making is that in the end-time scenario, confusion, chaos in society and politics will reach such a point that it is into that vacuum of power that one will come and people will willingly and gladly give him all authority to rule over them and they will trade their freedom and their liberty for security. And that doesn't just happen in the tribulation. That happens throughout history, but it will happen in its final form in the tribulation period with this one who is called the Antichrist. So last time we began to look at this question, who is the Antichrist and what will he do? And first of all, I pointed out Jesus warned of false messiahs and false prophets as two distinct categories. They're not the same. They are distinct categories. He says in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs, that is false messiahs, and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Deception will be rampant. Just thought you wanted to see that picture again. <laughs> Second, we saw that Antichrist is a term used only one time in the Scripture, but it has become the most common title for the first beast of Revelation. This is seen in 1 John 2.18 and 2.22. He is a pseudo-Messiah. He will claim to do what only the Messiah can do. And third, he has, he's given a wide variety of titles in the scripture. He is called the uh, little horn in Daniel 7, 8, and 9, and 19 to 26. He's called the insolent king in Daniel 8, 23, the prince who is to come in Daniel 9, 26, and 27, the one who makes desolate in Daniel 9, 27, 11, 31, Matthew 24, 15, the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, the son of destruction in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, the lawless one in 2 Thess 2.8, uh, the beast in Revelation 11.7 and various other passages, the despicable person in Daniel 11.21, the strong-willed king in Daniel 11.36, and the worthless shepherd in Zechariah 11.16-17. Now all of that is simply to review what we did last time and bring us back to this point. There's a lot to cover here, and I want to make sure people don't get lost uh, <clears throat> as we go through these things. We need to hear these things again and again to make sure we're, we're all tracking. Fourth point about the Antichrist is he rises to power during the transition between the rapture and the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. We will not see him as the Antichrist before the rapture. So you will read the Midnight Sun or you will read uh, you know, uh, uh, National Enquirer and they'll have these articles about uh, the Antichrist, who he is, and trying to define him. But we're not looking for the Antichrist. Scripture says the next thing that happens is the blessed hope. And we are looking for Jesus Christ. He will come in the air for us and the Antichrist is not revealed until afterward. But he begins to rise to power prior to Daniel's 70th week, and in the first half of Daniel's 70th week is when he 
uh, brings his power base together and establishes his empire. Daniel 9.27 says that he will make a firm covenant. That's that peace treaty with Israel. With the many, that's Israel. For one week, that's a seven-year period, seven days. It's not one week. It's one, uh, seven, one period of sevens, which was what comes out of the context. But in the middle of the week, that is halfway through that seven-year period, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and that's the abomination of desolation. So just to remind you, the seven-year period is divided into two, three-and-a-half-year periods. During the first half, we see this rise to power. Halfway through, he is so full of himself that he sets himself up to be worshipped as God in the temple in Jerusalem, which means there has to be a rebuilt temple, can't be the way things are today. And from that point on, we see his full-blown hostility to uh, believers during that end-time tribulation period. Who is this man? Well, our fifth point, he is the head of a confederation of Western powers related to the revived Roman Empire during the tribulation years. Now, in points five and six, we have to go back to Daniel. That's one of the most interesting studies we can do in prophecy. I spent some time several years ago going through Daniel, but in order to get a framework for understanding what we're going to see in Revelation, we have to summarize what's going on in Daniel. And there are several critical visions given in the uh, time of Daniel that Daniel interpreted that help us to understand history. And one of these occurred in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar is the uh, <clears throat> king of uh, Babylon, the, uh, and he has a dream one night. And in that dream, he sees an image. And it's very disturbing for him what happens to that image, and he doesn't understand what the dream means. And so he starts, goes out and seeks all of his soothsayers and astrologers and everyone in his kingdom to try to interpret the dream for him. But he's a cagey old crow, and he's not going to tell them what the dream was. And as much as they bribe him uh, to tell him what the dream is, he won't, because he recognizes that if anyone really can interpret dreams, it's not much more difficult to just tell them what the dream was to begin with. And so he threatens them with their life. And in the process, they, uh, <clears throat> Daniel steps forward in Daniel t chapter 2, and he comes to the king, and he is going to not only tell him what the dream was that he saw, but he's going to interpret the dream for him. And this is one of my always been one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, but we're just going to cover it rather briefly uh, this morning. See, so a great statue, Daniel 2.31, and as you go through it, there's a head of gold. And Daniel identifies Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, as the head of gold in Daniel 2.38. The next part of the statue was the upper section of silver, the upper tor torso, and the two arms. After you, there will arise another kingdom, and this is the uh, Medo-Persian uh, kingdom. It's comprised of Medes and Persians that relates to the two arms. And then there's a third kingdom, which is Greece, and then the fourth kingdom that is as strong as iron. Pay attention to that word iron. That relates to the <coughs> revived Roman Empire. So the empires in history, as this goes, first of all, Babylon, then the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. 
But what's fascinating is when he gets down to the ankles, he says that the lower calves and the feet were a combination of iron and clay and among the ten toes. And so it's the ten toes that we want to focus on here. It's not a random concept because those ten toes are going to represent ten nations that we'll see are mentioned several places in Scripture. And the focus of this prophecy is on this final kingdom. Now, one other thing we should observe is that Daniel looks at this, who have this magnificent statue, and it looks at the kingdom of man as man wants to think about it, as glorious, as powerful, as, as beautiful. And we have the whole history of mankind laid out in terms of these empires from Babylon to Persia to Greece and then to Rome. But see, the Roman Empire is not pictured as one that is destroyed as the others do. And there are elements of each empire which continue to feed into the subsequent empire. And even though the Roman Empire, we look back and we say, well, you know, the Western Empire fell and then the Eastern Empire fell in 1458, but the elements of that Roman Empire continue today much of Western civilization's laws are predicated upon things that were developed in the Roman Empire. And so, as it were, it is just in a state of uh, 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 absence right now, but it will return, and that's what is depicted in the, the final part of the statue. Here we go. Come on. Okay. This is the uh, historical timeline, the Head of gold is Babylon from 605 to 539. The chest and torso of silver, 539 to 331. The Medo-Persian Empire. Brass represents the Greek Empire from 331 to 146. Iron represents Rome from 146 to 1453. And then the iron and the clay, the future revived Roman Empire. Now, all of that is important because as Daniel sees this vision and interprets this vision. It gives us an outline to understand the subsequent prophecies that are given in Daniel. And as people read through Daniel, they read about the various uh, uh, statues and then the uh, animals that appear on the scene and the vision in Daniel chapter 7. It's easy for people to become somewhat confused as to what all these things describe. But once you have these things explained to you and the text lays it out, it is the most remarkable, contains the most remarkable prophecies in all of Scripture. So the sixth point that we see is that the Antichrist rises to power following the confederation of ten nations. He will then assume control as an eleventh king. He will assume control over the ten. They are not removed, but he is elevated over them. And in the process, it appears that three are resisting, and so he conquers them and uh, subdues them and includes them within his kingdom. Now, Daniel chapter 7 represents these kingdoms that we just saw in Daniel chapter 2 as four beasts. Now we're looking at these kingdoms from God's viewpoint. 
that man in independence from God is bestial. He is horrible. He is, uh, his power, uh, he's taken power out of control and he is destructive of uh, God's purpose. So these ravenous, powerful beasts are used to depict these kingdoms. And so we have these four beasts, the, the lion that represents Babylon, then the bear, it's a lopsided bear indicating the greater power of Persia over the Medes, but the bear represents the Medo-Persian Empire, and then there is a four-headed leopard who represents the uh, Greek Greek Empire, and the four heads represents its fourfold division after the death of Alexander. And then there is another beast, a fourth beast that shows up, and this beast is horrible, and it goes forth devouring and crushing, and it has, uh, it's pictured with, with uh, teeth of iron. So that takes us back to the iron in the previous image in the, the statue related to the Roman Empire, but this beast has, has ten horns. Now those ten horns connect back to the ten toes in Daniel uh, chapter 2. Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, we read, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And verse 8, I was considering the horns. There's another horn, a little horn coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. That Whenever you see eyes, it speaks of knowledge, and a mouth speaking pompous words. So that is referring to his arrogant claims of power. Now, as we look at this, we understand that the Antichrist is the little horn, and he is going to subdue three of these horns in the process of gaining control over the ten. And that is how he establishes uh, his authority and establishes his kingdom. And this is viewed as, um, as a revival of the uh, Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, one of its characteristics was its emphasis on law. But Rome saw itself as independent from God, that Caesar himself later on is worshipped as God, and this, of course, created some of the great conflicts with Christians within the Roman Empire because they had to swear allegiance to Caesar as God. If they refused to do that, then they were persecuted, often thrown uh, into uh, the Colosseum with animals where they were uh, eaten alive and all of these various things. And they had to swear allegiance to uh, Caesar as Dominus et Delus, which means Lord and God. And they had to confess that Caesar was God, or you couldn't uh, continue in, as a citizen in Rome. You would be uh, persecuted and killed. And so the Romans crushed the world by developing this, this legal system that often dominated people. Eventually, it destroyed the empire from within because any government 
that redefines law on its own terms will ultimately destroy itself. Because as long as we are living within God's world, we can't redefine reality. And as soon as you start redefining reality in terms of legal pronouncements, then eventually there will be a destruction. And so the Roman Empire is pictured here as one that break, that's devouring, that breaks in pieces, that tramples uh, the residue with his feet. And then the ten horns represent something that is future. That hasn't been fulfilled yet. And this is further explained as we get into Daniel 7, uh, 19 and 20. Describes that again. And in verse uh, 19, it's teeth of iron and nails of bronze, indicating again a different blend than uh, as similar to the kind of thing that you see in the feet of clay, the iron and clay mix in the statue, because bronze is not as strong as, as iron. Then in the interpretation... In verse 23 we read, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, trample it, break it into pieces. And as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue the three kings. And he will speak out against the Most High, so he will take up a position that is directly antagonistic to God. And this is what we've seen in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and other passages related to the Antichrist is he sets himself up over against God. He speaks out against the Most High, and he will wear down. He will continue to pursue and oppress the saints of the Highest One, and then he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. Now, there are those who say, well, this is like in the... Uh, French Revolution, when they tried to reestablish, instead of a seven-day week, they were going to have a ten-day week and other things like that. But actually, I think that this is a little bit more general than that. He he wants to reestablish things in terms of his own authority. He sets himself up as the ultimate arbiter of law, and law does not come from uh, elsewhere. And so it is a rejection of God as the ultimate source of law. And we live in a world today where we see this same spirit developing. There were the uh, legal cases in the past few years to remove any kind of uh, statue or, or portrait of the Ten Commandments from courtrooms uh, in order to remove any idea that law has its base in eternal absolutes, and that is both both a revision of history because it denies the Judeo-Christian background of um, American Jew- jurisprudence, but it also denies, uh, is, is a direct attack on God as the ultimate source of law. And this works itself out and has been working itself out in all kinds of areas in our society where Political institutions seek to establish legal solutions to man-defined problems in order to develop a perfect or utopic society. And as I pointed out, a lot of this has its roots in the 19th century with Darwinism, 
Marxism and socialism, uh, Freudianism, and the education system with John Dewey. John Dewey was also one of the framers of the uh, first humanist uh, manifesto. And John Dewey, in his book, uh, A Common Faith, wrote, I cannot understand how any realization of the democratic ideal as a vital moral and spiritual ideal in human affairs is possible without surrender of the conception of the basic human division to which Christianity is committed. So he has a foundational commitment to remove Christianity from the marketplace of ideas. It has no place in education, no place in society. And this is not any different from what we're observing today in the whole debate over creation and evolution. Of course, most of you are familiar with the uh, Ben Stein film that just came out last week called Expelled. And if you observe what's happened, it's ironic that this last week that the Institute for Creation Research, which has recently moved to Dallas and has uh, been seeking to get uh, authorization from the Texas State Department of Education to grant master's degrees in their school, that they want to move from California to Texas because it's less expensive to run things in Texas. But the Texas Department of Education, in a ruling, this last week refused to get, authorize them to grant degrees. And they, in the process of the hearing, they wouldn't even allow the Institute for Creation Research to present their case that they were teaching sound science and that uh, the a- aspect of creationism that they taught would not interfere with and does not destroy a person's ability to do sound science. So there is a direct and overt assault uh, that is uh, much more overt today than it's ever been before. And there are books that have come out recently, such as Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And also Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. These books have sold over... Um, a million copies uh, in the last six months that they've been out. And there are a number of other books that have come out also promoting atheism. And there are more and more scientists and political theorists coming out who just basically want to make Christianity illegal. And if you saw the film uh, in the last week, some of these scientists that said, well, Christians are fine. If that makes them feel good, that's great. Just, just They can go worship in a closet somewhere. But as long as none of those ideas leak out and affect anything else in culture, as long as we can just isolate them because uh, that has nothing to do with reality. And the more we can teach evolution, the more we will develop atheists and the more these people who believe in God will disappear. I particularly like the response of uh, <clears throat> Alistair McGrath to Dawkins in his book, The Dawkins Delusion. <laughs> it would just be nice to be sitting up in heaven when some of these folks die and see their realization of truth, but we don't get to see that. So in Daniel... Daniel chapter 7, we see these ten horns arise, and it is the little horn that is the beast, the Antichrist. So we learn several things in this chapter about the Antichrist. First of all, we learn that he rises to power from within this fourth empire. 
and this empire is made up of ten nations, ten kings, and that it is a revival of the old Roman Empire, comes out of the base of the old Roman Empire. But don't forget, the old Roman Empire wasn't just Western Europe. It also included Turkey and Syria and Lebanon and Egypt and North Africa. So the ten kings represent the the old Roman Empire, and he rises from in their midst. Uh, they are already in place when he comes forward, and he will take control over them. He doesn't replace them, but he is set up in authority over them. Perhaps he's the uh, uh, general secretary of the U.N. who assumes authority over a ten-nation confederacy of some kind. We learn that there is some unique quality about him in 728. There is something about him that causes people to give him that authority and to give him that power. Uh, Fourth, we learn that he is arrogant. He challenges the Most High with great and boastful words. He is specifically set against Christianity and against God. And 50 years ago, we might have thought that that was very unusual, almost impossible for that to happen, but as each decade goes by, we see more and more of this anti-Christian, anti-God mentality in the West, and now it is more and more acceptable, if not expected. Fifth, we learn that he will persecute tribulation saints, and these are the primarily Jews in the tribulation period. It also connects to Revelation chapter 13, verses 7 and 8, where we're told that he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. There will be a true global government. It will be short-lived, but it will be a true global government and global power. All the inhabitants of the earth, we're told, will worship the beast. Seventh, Revelation 13, 16 to 18, he forces everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he has this mark. And it's the mark 666. There's a lot of debate over that. We'll get there when we get there. Eighth, he gains control over the world for only three and a half years. There's that rise to power to the time when he reaches his ultimate power halfway through the tribulation, and then his worst period of tyranny is the last half, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. During that time, he will precipitate a war that is so horrendous, so destructive, so ferocious, that Jesus said if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, Matthew 24:22. He will seek to change the Jewish ceremonial calendar. That's part of the calendar change. And he will, uh, will rule over the world. This is what we see in our look at Daniel chapter, chapter 11. Now, Daniel 11 is the third great passage on the career of the Antichrist that we will look at next time as we continue to go through our various points on the Antichrist. Remember, we've only covered six points proper in the Antichrist, and I've covered several others here, points 9 through 10. These these last 10 points were just on uh, Daniel chapter 7.
So when we understand what is going on with the Antichrist, there's a lot of revelation about him in the Scripture, and as we see that, it gives us a clue as to where history is headed. But it also gives us a clue into what is happening in certain trends and cycles in the church age. Remember last time I pointed out that that at every generation, every decade, no one knows when the rapture is going to occur. No one knows when the Antichrist is going to need to be revealed. And so in every generation, in every decade, the, the, Satan has his man, has his system ready to move on the scene once the restrainer is removed. And so we see these trends. And if you are wise, especially this year in a political year, if you are wise and discerning, as you know scriptures, you can watch the political candidates and you can see these trends manifest themselves more and more in, in everyone. It's not a matter of political party or political persuasion because, as I pointed out earlier, what we've seen as a pull for the last 150 to 200 years in the direction of providing a utopic solution for man. And you have, uh, for example, in the last 18 years, you've had this shift towards providing some kind of universal health care, how anti-freedom, anti-capitalist can you get? And yet, because this, we've had this drumbeat on this thing for the last 18 years, even conservatives are beginning to say, well, we need to do something that, that this this utopic ideal just sucks everybody off to the left and as christians we can have the discernment and the wisdom to see exactly what is going on because all these things in one way or another will lead up to a society that is open to uh, to the Antichrist. And I'm not saying that that's going to be in the next election or in the next decade or even in the next century, but these are the trends that set the stage for the future uh, end-time events. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that you are in control and that when it is all said and done, you are the one who will defeat and judge sin and evil for all time. And there will be a period of time when you will allow sin and evil to have its day only to show how wicked and horrible it is, and that no creature can ever find success, happiness, or stability apart from dependence upon you. Father, your word tells us that our basic problem is sin, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the free gift is eternal life, that all of us have sinned, but we've all sinned and gone our own way. But you laid upon your son, the Lamb of God, our sin. He paid the penalty. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny that they would take this opportunity to recognize that there is no hope apart from Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ paid it all. And all that is required of you is that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, trust in him. And at the instant you put your trust in him, you have eternal life, which can never be taken from you. You have forgiveness of sins, you're justified, you're regenerate, and you will spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study today, that we might be encouraged and strengthened knowing that you control history. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.